Tran sat there, and he was bleeding. It was the years under the communist dictatorship of Nicolae Ceausescu that Romanian pastor Dr. Paul Negrut was visiting another Christian leader, Trian Dors, in his humble home in Romania. And as Paul entered his house, he realized that Trian was bleeding from open wounds. He asked him, what happened? And Trian answered, the secret police have just left my home. They came and they confiscated all of my manuscripts, and then they beat me. You can imagine how it must feel to have your year's work taken from you, and then to find yourself beaten, physically assaulted, by those with authority, by police officers, secret police officers from the government, and all of this just because you serve Jesus. Think of how those earliest followers of Christ must have felt after his death. They were very few in a very large culture that was hostile to their beliefs. They were actively being hunted down. Their leader had died. The movement might have seemed to be at an end already. Just a few Christians with everything against them. They had no power, had nothing. And then Jesus, right as it seemed to all be falling apart, Jesus had surprised them by breaking the power of death and coming back to life transformed and resurrected. And now we read of his final words, as recorded in the gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 24, his final words before returning to heaven. He, that is Jesus, told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my Father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple praising God. What do we see here? Well, First of all, we see these earliest followers of Jesus worshiping him. That's the language that you, that's used. They worshiped him once they saw him ascending. They're bowing down before Jesus. They're, they're praying to him and praising him. These were the very first followers of Christ, and they were all Jewish. And if you understand anything about ancient Judaism, it was extremely monotheistic. And there was not much tolerance for worshiping anything other than God, not within Judaism and not within early Christianity. Remember in the book of Revelation when St. John sees his vision of, of this angel and he bows down before the angel, overwhelmed by its presence, and the angel rebukes him and says, don't worship me, I'm just a creature like you. Worship God. So this isn't an angel. They're recognizing who Jesus is, that he is God the Son in the flesh, resurrected and ascended to glory. You know, their their hearts were captivated by Jesus. They were so overwhelmed by him that they bowed down before him. Their hearts were moved. They They were captured. They loved Jesus and were longing for him and were worshiping him to be captivated by something. What does it mean? Um, we've got a couple pictures. Let's get that first slide if we could. Um, that dog 
is captivated. <laughs> Martin Luther said, if I could worship Jesus the way that dog looks at food, everything would be all right. We've got another one of these. It's very similar. That's what it means to be captivated, to, to have your heart captured. That's good. That there's something that you're just so focused on, laser focused on, that everything else seems unimportant. You know, the stars are always out, but you can't see them in the daytime because there's a brighter light in the sky that steals all the glory. And that's Jesus. Uh, to be captivated by Jesus, to love him, you have to know that he loves you. Uh, it's the way romance works. You know, somebody says, love me, you're going to tell them, you know, where they can send their love. But if somebody says, I love you, it opens up your heart to love them in response. Um, and it's not a trivial matter. I, I remember one seminary professor, uh, she asked 120 of her students one year if they believed that God loves them. Do you know how many answered yes? Two out of 120. And the other 118 gave answers like, well, I know the Bible says that God loves me, but... Or, I'm not feeling it, or... I'm not sure I can really say that I believe that's true. Um, to love God, you have to know he loves you. And you have to taste that. You have to experience that. You know, Jonathan Edwards talked about how there's a difference between knowing cognitively that honey is sweet and actually tasting honey and experiencing its sweetness. Um, that illustration never does anything for me because I don't like honey. But I've got something similar. We've got another slide. Um, uh, what is this? This is a savory bagel with Mexican mole. No, no. This is a donut. A, a chocolate frosted donut. How many people here like chocolate frosted donuts? Now, is that just a cognitive theological statement that you're making, an affirmation of a cre No, no, no. You, you know, it's, it's one thing to say, I know that those are sweet because they have a lot of sugar in them. And, and, uh, but, but then when I see on Donut Sunday, which is not, I'm so sorry, it's next week. It's the, it's the first Sunday of the month. On Donut Sunday after worship, when I'm in the play garden or in the narthex, and I see a small child with chocolate all the way around, smeared all the way around their mouth, fingers just hoping they don't touch anything that's fabric, you know, and, and, and they've got half a donut in one hand, and their cheeks are bulging out, and they're chewing, and I ask that child, is that a good donut? And they look at me, and their eyes are big, and there's a big smile on their face. That's not just knowing cognitively that donuts are good. That's experiencing the goodness of the donut. Do you experience the love of God for you? Or is it just a cognitive doctrinal affirmation in a creed somewhere? You can't love Jesus until you experience his love for you. We love because he first loved us. And Jesus' first followers, they had tasted his love. They had seen his glory. They had witnessed his power. They had known his goodness. They had experienced his salvation. And they wanted more. And they were worshiping him because their hearts were captivated and he was God in the flesh. We see these earliest followers of Jesus worshiping him. We also see his promise of spirit-empowered mission. 
Remember, these early followers of Jesus were desperately aware of their weakness. Their leader, Peter, had just denied Jesus not once, not twice, but three times in public. He had fallen badly. Was he going to be restored? Maybe. What's that going to look like? Will he still be fit to lead after such a failure? No one knew at that point. The other leaders had all been scattered when Jesus died. They were hesitant when Jesus appeared, resurrected before them. They were hesitant to believe it. It was too good to be true. They needed proof. The Jewish authorities in Jerusalem were still out to get them. They were being hunted down one by one. It's as if their movements, engines had sputtered out. They knew their weakness. They had no power. I want you to think about what it's like having no power. You know, they, they say that airline disasters are very rare, and they are. It, flying in a plane is still one of the safest ways to get a long distance. Um, but occasionally, things do go wrong. I read about a private German bombardier jet, luxury jet that was cruising at 34,000 feet. Its passengers were having the, the, the highest of high dining experience. They were having, you know, crystal goblets of wine from France, and they were eating food off of porcelain china. They had a private chef with amuse-bouches and a seven-course meal. Uh, they, they had, you know, luxury linens and everything. They, they had the, the maitre d', their, you know, their, 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 their flight attendant who was there at their beck and call to give them whatever they wanted. It was the truly exclusive private jet experience until that German bombardier jet flew beneath the flight path of a mammoth Emirates super jumbo jet en route from Sydney to Dubai. Um, it's not a good thing. Suddenly, on that bombardier, the lights went out. There were things flying. The, the plane flipped itself upside down, and there was glasses flying everywhere, silverware flying everywhere, food going all about the cabin. People were screaming. Everything was spinning. The steward was bleeding on the floor. The wake brought turbulence so powerful that it caused the aircraft to flip again and then to flip again. And from the ground, you could see the plane flip five times and then... In a flash, those on board realized how unimportant the cuts and nicks and the ruined food and the spilled glasses were when they realized that the engines had stopped and there was a complete power failure aboard the jet. And they were in a tailspin and they were barreling straight downward to the ground faster and faster in a nosedive. And in just moments, the plane had dropped 10,000 feet and was accelerating toward the earth. And nothing mattered at that point unless the pilots could figure out a way to restart the engine. They had no power. The bombardier was hurtling toward the earth faster and faster. Out the windows at a funny angle, the earth was growing closer and closer. And no, nothing could help without the engines. No effort at branding or marketing was going to do them any good. No renewed focus on synergies or core competencies. No new programming. Only one thing mattered. The plane weighed 20 tons and they needed the engines to start because they had no power. Unless the pilots could restart the engines, they were dropping from the sky at 30, from 34,000 feet and they were desperately trying to regain control. That's how those early followers of Jesus would have felt after his crucifixion. They were very small. They had no power. 
They had no ability to fulfill the purpose that he had set before them. They had failed Jesus in his hour of need, and they knew they were weak, and their engines were out. And here, in this passage, we see what Jesus is promising. He says, I am going to send you what my Father has promised. Stay in the city until you have been clothed with what? Power from on high. Power from God. Put yourself back aboard that airplane. Using what one journalist described as raw muscle force, the pilots got hold of the controls. They flipped switches. They turned knobs. They flipped levers. And then they waited. And they waited. And they waited. In what seemed to stretch to infinity, they suddenly felt the shock of the engines restarting. Power coursed through the plane. The flaps responded to steering controls, and the plane pulled up, and the, dis- the, the earth disappeared from view. The horizon reappeared as a line in front of them. Now, granted, the place was a complete wreck. We've got a before and after photo of inside. They had to completely scrap the plane. It was beyond repair, but with full power, the plane safely landed at an airport in Oman and Muscat, and everyone was alive. And in some ways, it's a picture of the church, and it's a picture of the soul's spiritual life, and it's a picture of how we go about the mission of God following Jesus and his mission to bring his welcome to all the nations of the earth. You can imagine if you were on that plane and the power was out and a recent graduate from business school pushed his way into the cabin and said, I'm here to help. I have all of these books and resources I can recommend to improve the warmth and the welcome of the stewards, to broaden the reach of your plane's marketing, to improve customer experience using a trusted three-point plan to pull together synergies and leverage best practices to shore up our core competencies and develop buy-in from key constituencies. But the plane has no power. It's going to crash. And none of that matters to the church if we don't have power. But if we have power from God, then nothing can stop the gospel from calling out God's people and bringing salvation to the ends of the earth. Look at your spiritual life. Look at your commitment to follow Jesus in mission. How are you doing? How are you doing? Are you representing Jesus in your life and relationships? Do people know that you're a Jesus follower? Do you offer to pray for people? Are you public about your faith? Not wearing it like a bumper sticker, but just being humbly honest about what you're living for, about the promise that the gospel gives, about how Jesus has rescued you. Um, Do you know what it's like to be spiritually powerless? Are you there now? There are a lot of books A lot of seminars, a lot of podcasts out there telling you how to improve your life, improve your family, improve your church. But none of that matters if you can't restart your engines. Do not be lacking in zeal, St. Paul tells the Romans, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Have you lost your fervor? Did you once have it? Do you need to restart your engines? What's that going to look like when that happens? See, for that, we have to look back at this promise of Jesus because the power is not found inside of me or inside of you or in my power to believe, but in the objective promise of Jesus that he will give us power if we step out in mission. He will give us power and we will bear fruit. Jesus promising power from on high to start the engines, a power 
so that we can join in the mission of Jesus. That's what he said. He said, these things were written about beforehand, that I would die and, and rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations. He says, you're witnesses of this. I'm going to send you what my father promised. You're going to be clothed with power on high, and that's what will enable you to represent Jesus with your life, following him in his mission, that you will be clothed with power from on high. That's what happened at Pentecost 50 days after that first Easter Sunday. So now followers of Jesus have access to the power of God to serve him, to preach the gospel, he says, to all nations. We've got another slide. What does that look like? It means in the coming age, when we stand before God in heaven, there are going to be people there from every tongue and tribe and people and nation, people from every continent, from every background, from every life experience, having committed all sorts of failures in their lives, but washed by Jesus with new life, with joy. It's going to be the most multinational, multi-ethnic thing in the history of the cosmos as all nations come to Jesus. Every people group bearing his forgiveness, knowing his, his power, a promise from God, a power, always carries with it an implied call to repentance, to put our lives back in line with God's priorities, his priority for the mission of Jesus on this earth. His priority for the church to be a place that welcomes all people to Jesus and that brings the gospel to all peoples of the earth, where, where the gospel is at work in our lives and in other churches and so that the Christians become salt and light and, and, and the nations, as they, as they come captivated by Jesus and his salvation, he beats their swords into plowshares and brings about a new way of living in the peace of God. Power, power but it requires that we surrender to him and step out in service to him and his kingdom. This is possible. It's possible, friends, because Jesus has ascended. Notice the disciples' emotion. They return to Jerusalem with great joy. Think of how weird that is. You know, when St. Paul in the book of Acts, left the Ephesian elders for the last time, they were so sad and they wept bitterly and they begged them not to leave. Here, Jesus leaves, and they're like, "Woohoo! what's going on? Well, they're joyful because what Jesus was going to do. Jesus was going to take up his throne to serve and fulfill his role as great high priest, interceding for us before the Father, you know, improving our condition dramatically, more so than if he stayed here on earth, and above all, pouring out his spirit, the spirit of God from on high in power. This is the birth of the, the uh, 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 we speak of, of the birth of Christ being salvific. We speak of the cross of Jesus saving us. We speak of being saved by his resurrection power. But friends, we are also saved by his ascension because we have a representative before God who always intercedes night and day on your behalf, telling the Father what you need, and the Father will not reject him. We have Jesus. He has been enthroned. You know, there's that... That scene at the beginning of The Lion King, um, I speak of the circa 1990 Disney version that traumatized a whole generation of millennials, um, but, uh, and earlier. Um, but, you know, there's that scene at the beginning of The Lion King where, yeah, where, uh, um, uh, where, you know, little Simba, Rafiki, you know, the baboon holds up little Simba and declares that, that he is going to be the next king. 
and, and everybody's excited, and it's all great. And then, of course, the story goes downhill because evil uncle, you know, Scar, then kills off the, the current Lion King and, and makes poor little Simba think that it was his own fault, and he runs away, ends up in exile, and eventually he grows up, and he comes back, and he fights a whole bunch of bad guys. He beats up the hyenas and chases them out. You know, the, the, you know Scar is no more. He's been defeated and conquered, and yet there's that scene at the end of the movie where Rafiki points Simba to Pride Rock because he's not king yet. He's not king until he's been enthroned and acknowledged as such. And Rafiki points his staff and then, you know, Simba climbs up to the top of Pride Rock and then he roars. And as he roars, every other lion joins in roaring and joins in acknowledging the new king, the king who has been enthroned, the king at Pride Rock who is now ruler. Friends, that is Jesus. Simba is just a type of Christ. There is a real king. And when the darkness is there and he roars, suddenly the light bursts through and life comes back to Pride Rock. That's Jesus going up to the Father, ascending to be enthroned as king over all. It's the triumph of King Jesus. Imagine the picture in heaven, that parallel universe to our own universe of space and time that overwraps it and intersects with it in ways we don't understand at all. Imagine Jesus sent out in abject humiliation, sent from his throne to become a creature, to become a mere human, a, a God-man, and a human subject to suffering and subject to death and, and, and sorrow, sent out with a mission to be humiliated, to be scourged and tortured and murdered, sent out with a mission to absorb the wrath of God in humanity's place, to die the death we should have died so that we could gain the life that we never would have had otherwise, and then to hear that Christ has died, but that through his death, the curtain in the Lord's temple has been torn in two and access to God has been regained. To know that Satan has been defeated and for them to then hear of the forgiveness of sins of all of God's people throughout time. To know that now the curse would be reversed. That to hear that Jesus had risen from death and would never die again indeed. That death itself was dying. That grave had been overwhelmed and death itself was defeated. To realize that Jesus Christ was now the hero of the cosmos and the savior of the human race, healing in his body that rift between man and God caused by our sin, to know that the Son of God has completed his mission and is now returning to heaven triumphant in glory. Imagine the joy in heaven when the resurrected Jesus returned as he had been sent, returning in glory as Christ our victor, as our conqueror, one who is worthy of all praise and honor and glory, one you, you can only imagine the triumphal procession in heaven, the crowning as king of kings and as lord of lords, the taking up of his throne at the father's right hand as all creation bows before his name. Friends, that is what the disciples were rejoicing over as they saw Jesus blessing them and returning to his father's throne. Love enthroned forever in the presence of God. That is how he can send us power from on high that we might fulfill his mission and live out the mission of Jesus with him on the mission field here in St. Louis and everywhere else. This means, friends, that we are now living in the age of the ascension, of Christ rising back up to heaven. We read that when 
He had led them. He was blessing them as he was taking, being taken up to heaven. The picture here is of the disciples sitting there worshiping Jesus, and he is blessing them as he goes up to heaven, continually blessing, to bless from the throne of God. Christ always with his arms outstretched to bless you. To receive a blessing is to have his smile rest upon you. It's to have his favor rest upon you. I remember one NFL legend talking about his sons and how he would bless them. Every day he would see them and say, I love you, I bless you, and I think you're terrific. And that was really cute when they were about five years old. But by the time they were 25, they were 300 pounds. They were playing professional ball. They were six foot six, and they could bench 500 pounds. And yet, nevertheless, Bill Glass says that he went up to his 30-year-old, 25-year-old son and said, I love you. I bless you, son. I think you're terrific. And I'm so glad you're mine. And this six foot six, 300-pound linebacker started tearing up saying, thank you, Dad. I needed that. We need blessing. And here Jesus gives his blessing on all who will follow him so that when the age, in this age of ascension, there's no amount of suffering or sorrow or hardship or death that can take away the life we have in Jesus. He has ascended to heaven and he will strengthen you in an otherwise impossible witness. It's the message about Jesus becoming unstoppable. In our weakness, he is strong. Jesus restarts the engines because he's the true king. The Romanian pastor, Paul Negrut, was visiting Trian Doors, and he was bleeding. Trian said, the secret police just left my home. They came and they confiscated my manuscripts, and then they beat me. Pastor Paul says, I began to complain about the heavy tactics of the secret police. But Trian stopped me saying, Brother Paul, it is so sweet to suffer for Jesus. God did bring us together tonight to complain, but to praise him. So let's kneel down now and pray. And they knelt down and Trian began praying for the secret police officers. He asked God to forgive them, to bless them, and to save them. He told God how much he loved them and he said, God, if they will come back in the next few days, I pray that you will prepare me to minister to them. Paul continued, by this time, I felt ashamed. I thought I had been living the most difficult life in Romania for the Lord, and I was bitter about that. But Triandors shared with Paul how the secret police beat him twice every week, week after week after week. And every time, he would look into the agent's eyes after his beating and say, Mr., I love you, and I want you to know that if our next meeting is before the judgment throne of God, you will not go to hell because I hate you, but because you have rejected love. Years later, that officer came alone to his home one night. Trian prepared himself for another beating, but the officer spoke kindly, and he said, Mr. Doors, the next time we meet will be before the judgment throne of God. I came tonight to ask your forgiveness for what I did to you and to tell you that your love moved my heart. I have asked Jesus to save me. And then two days ago, my doctor discovered that I have a very severe case of cancer and have only a few weeks to live before I go to be with God.
I came tonight to tell you that we will be together on the other side because of Jesus. What had happened? In our weakness, Jesus showed up with power from on high. Obedient to Christ's missionary call, Trian's words were joined by the power of the Holy Spirit that can take a dead heart and make it alive, that can take an enemy of God like St. Paul and turn him into the apostle to the Gentiles, the very people he used to hate. Trian's words were joined by power from on high, and now both Trian and that officer get to spend eternity perfected and transformed in the presence of love himself. Let's pray.